Well, let me offer my welcome to you this morning. If you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 10, that's where we're going to be on this Palm Sunday. Uh, This is a glorious day if we're uh, looking at the life of Jesus. This is the day. You know, I've said a few weeks ago, as we have turned the corner there in the middle part of Luke 9, we're going to see Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. So if we were ahead of the game uh, a couple years, as far as preaching through the, the book of of Luke, we would get to that point where Jesus is entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and that is exactly what we would be celebrating this morning on this glorious day. But we are in Luke 10 today. Find your place there, and as you're finding your place, I want you to listen to a couple passages that are going to help us uh, understand what Jesus is teaching in this text this morning. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. James says something very similar in James chapter 2, verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, but does not have works, is dead. James and John here in these two passages magnify what we're going to see in Jesus' interaction with a lawyer. And so John and James are both calling, both appealing, both uh, exhorting us to model compassion in our life, that we would love people the way that Jesus loves them. And, And that's not just in word, that's in action. Modeling compassion. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. These subjects and these ideas are discussed, debated, talked about, looked at in, on the seminary campus. Uh, I, I went to seminary, did my master's, did my doctoral program. I sat in various classes. I've been with other theological students, pastors, missionaries, all of that. And, and so I'm going to share a story with you. And, and I've been in settings like this. So there was a seminary campus. It was a Greek class on a campus. And they had an assignment that was given to them in this Greek class. They were to take the story of the Good Samaritan, which is where we're at this morning, Luke 10, 25 through 37. And they were to do an in-depth analysis of this biblical text. They are to observe and comment on all of the, the, the major words, all the major components. Look at the syntactical factors. And anything worth mentioning, they were to bring in bring up in their assignment. They were to do their own translation of the Greek text and then also add their commentary. Well, in any class, especially a a, a language class, there are always students who are more about the practical implications than they are about the technical uh, nuances of a particular text. And so um, I remember being in some of these classes in seminary and I never really knew if they, these guys knew enough Greek or enough Hebrew to take their Hebrew Bible or their Greek Bible with them to chapel, but they did. So I always wondered, is it for show or do they really know Hebrew and Greek a whole lot more than I? Because I was never good enough to do that, right? Just full confession here. I know how to use helps. I know how to use different things. But I, and I've got all that in my office, but I can't take a Greek New Testament like Trevor can in some ways and just read it. I, I'm just not that sharp. 
So here are these guys in this Greek class with this assignment, and these particular guys, probably sharp, but they wanted to look at the practical side of what's taught in this text. And so the morning that the work was to be turned in, three students, practical guys, teamed up and carried out a plan to look at this text. One volunteer, one of the three volunteered to play the part the part of an alleged victim. The other two uh, tore his shirt, tore his pants. They, they uh, rubbed mud and ketchup and other things to make wounds on his body that would look realistic. They marked up his eyes and his face so that he was hardly able to be uh, recognized. And then they staged him along the path that led from the dormitory to the Greek classroom. Those two guys then went and hid themselves while he lay there on the ground groaning, groaning and writhing to stimulate pain. You can imagine they're setting this scene there to see what would happen. And that morning as they're hiding and watching this man simulating pain, writhing on the ground, student after student came by and did nothing. Sometimes it was a single person who would stop, look, maybe say something, and then pass on. Other times it was groups of people walking down the path, stop looking, and then leaving him there, stepping over him there. No one stopped to really check. No one stopped to offer help. No one acted with compassion toward him. You hear that scenario and you think, these are guys being trained for ministry. These are guys who are studying the very text that's been simulated in this scenario. And they didn't know enough on their way to Greek class to stop and to offer hate. To stop and at least see if there's something that they could do. I bet their work was uh, impeccable. I bet it was right on the money. I believe it was turned in on time. And yet John would tell us, he would declare that these students of the Bible lacked love. James would tell us that their faith is worthless if not they were spiritually dead themselves. And so as we're working through the gospel of Luke here, we are learning that part of Christ's purpose and our redemption is to send believers, to send you and I out with the gospel to engage people with the message of redemption. Discovered last Sunday in the first half of Luke chapter 10 that believers have been commissioned to participate as he sent those believers out there to go out and share the gospel with neighbors and the nations. This is the first of what I said last week is three scenes that we see in Luke 10 which simulate or, or, or call us to three ministries as a follower of Jesus Christ. The second scene that we will look at this morning reveals that believers are neighbors who look for opportunities to minister and to show mercy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll see that third scene where believers are worshipers who long to listen and to simply commune with the Lord Jesus as Mary sets at the feet of the Lord and just listens to him. Today, God's word calls us to demonstrate our Love and our commitment to Jesus by modeling compassion. We're to work the harvest, but as we work the harvest, we're to model the Lord's compassion toward others. It's a call to put our love and our faith into action. You see, we will learn this morning our willingness to model compassion will reveal a whole lot about our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that as how we live with others, it really is shorthand for our relationship or how we relate 
to the Lord. So Luke chapter 10, let's begin reading in verse 25. And hopefully this is a very familiar story and passage being the fact that it's the Good Samaritan text. Verse 25, Luke says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So what we have here as we read these verses is a story about a lawyer who brought up a theological area of debate before Jesus. Now, this lawyer is not the kind of lawyer you're probably thinking of. I mean, we've seen trial after trial on television lately. One of the uh, famous actresses just won a trial, so she had her lawyers, her attorneys sitting there with her in the courtroom. It's been all over the news. And so when you hear the term lawyer, that's not the kind of lawyer we're talking about necessarily. This lawyer was not in the court system in the city of Jerusalem as a prosecuting or defense attorney, but he was a lawyer, meaning he was part of a professional class of, uh, of interpreters, of teachers of the law. So he was a man who understood the Levitical law, the Old Testament law, the Torah that we see in Scripture. And so we also see that this is a, a term that is also used, and a synonymous term would be rabbi or teacher. And so we see these titles in the New Testament, and all of the times we see this, usually there's a discussion happening publicly. So a rabbi would discuss theological issues or law issues in the public square, and so this lawyer is posing a question that was a question debated often by this class of Jewish people. And so what we read here is a great question, right? What do I have to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It is a monumental question, and yet it's given with a wrong motive. The lawyer's plan is to trap Jesus, and yet as we read it, as we're going to see studying this text, it's not Jesus that is trapped. It's the man that becomes ensnared. So through this theological discussion, we, we learn, think about this, where to find the answers to our questions in life, right? What does Jesus say? He hears the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? 
You see, what we see here is that our questions that we have in life can be answered by this book right here on this table. The Word of God answers every major question of life. Anything we're wrestling with, anything we're struggling with, anything we're wanting to know can be found in God's Word that He gives. The answers we need to the questions of life are found in God's Word. We also learn that being changed by Jesus means that our heart and our subsequent actions are also transformed. You see, when you come into relationship with Jesus, he doesn't leave you the same. He accepts you the way you are. He accepts you with all of your brokenness, all of your fallenness, all of your blemishes, all of the mess that you are. He accepts you that way, but he does not leave you that way. You begin the process of being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ so that when Jesus models compassion toward others... That he was the one who willingly laid down his life. He left heaven. We just sang about him becoming Emmanuel, God with us. He left the glories of heaven to come to the brokenness of earth to take our sin upon himself so that we might be forgiven of that sin. He models compassion so that when we come to Jesus with all of our baggage, he takes the baggage and exchanges it for his righteousness and his glory and then begins the process of cleaning us up. We're to model his compassion, his love, his desire to see people changed in our lives. So this morning, I want us to look at this text. I want us to think about it in the context of what it means to model compassion. I'm going to share three points, three points of an outline, and then I want to give you three implications that we draw from this discussion about compassion. Here's the first thing I want you to see in this outline. We see a theological question. Verse 25, the lawyer says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, the lawyer here is asking a great question. In fact, it's the most important question we could ever ask. What must I do? What has to happen in my life for me to have the eternal life that Jesus is offering? That's a great question. That's what he asked Jesus here, a theological question. He's asking how to inherit, how to receive eternal life. And when we hear that term eternal life, most of the time, I would think, we think of heaven. We, we think of eternal life being heaven. And it is heaven, but it's more than that. You see, the word eternal means forever. And so when we think of eternal life, it is forever life. It is unending life. Eternal life is this forever life, but not just a life that goes on perpetually, but it is life with God lived out to the fullest. It's living life with God as it was meant to be from the very beginning. And so this idea is what the lawyer is asking about, and it's the question that every one of us who will die one day need to be asking. But notice something here. Notice that the lawyer assumed there was something he could or must do to earn eternal life. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, the natural default of humanity is to think that we have to earn our way 
into eternal life. That there's something that we have to do or there's something that we have to stop doing in order, in order to gain God's approval, to, to gain God's acceptance of us. And so when a person hits rock bottom of life, thankfully God in his grace and his goodness allows us to hit our face against the wall of life sometimes and it kind of wakes us up to the realization that something needs to change in our life. And in that moment, we begin to think, I need to do something. I need to get in church. See, if you have a church background, but you've not been living for the Lord and God allows you in his grace to hit bottom, you begin to realize, man, I got to get in church. So the man whose life is devastated from alcoholism hits rock bottom and says, I've got to go to church. You think going to church will change your life? Not necessarily. Some of you, maybe, you've been sitting in a church a long time. But Jesus has never changed your life, but you're in church all the time. You think parking your, this is an old preacher's analogy, but you think parking something in the garage turns it into a car or a better version of a car, right? That's not the way it works. You can come in church, sit here all, all day long. You, you can participate and be involved. But if you never come into relationship with Jesus Christ, coming to church is not going to change you. But it puts you on the road. You see, going to church doesn't make you a candidate for eternal life, but it puts you perhaps on the trajectory. Because when you're in church and you're with God's people, you're going to sit under the teaching of the gospel, at least in this church. You're going to hear what, how much God loves you. You're going to hear how much God has done for you. You're going to be on the path. You're going to have an opportunity to hear and to respond to that in faith. And so when you hit rock bottom and you begin to realize, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? It may not be theologically sound to say, I've got to go to church because when I go to church, God is going to accept me. But when you do to come to church, you begin to realize, I can't do anything to earn this, but I just need to receive it. That's when something beautiful takes place. So this man asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We don't want to make the mistake here that, that we begin to think that we have to do something, that we have to clean ourselves up. No, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He didn't say, clean yourself up, take the load off you, fix yourself, get your life straight. No, he just says, come as you are. So Jesus accepts us in our brokenness, in our fallenness, in our mess, and then he begins to reshape and put the pieces back together. The cross of Calvary tells us that there's no way that we could be good enough. Because if we could be good enough... Why would God ever step out of heaven and take our sins upon himself, bear our sin, our shame in his body, if he didn't have to do that? No, he would just say, live out the commandments. Do these things. Try harder. Lean in more. Grip a little tighter. No, he says, you cannot do that. No one is good enough. No, not one. So the lawyer asks the theological question, but he does not ask it in or with sincerity. You see, his goal was to test Jesus. He's a smart theologian. He believes he knows the law. He believes he's mastered it. And yet as we read this, we see that he's the one who's mastered by the very word of God himself, Jesus Christ. So we ask a theological question. Jesus gives an answer. The second thing I want you to see here is this gospel answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is going to tell him just that. And so he poses a question. What is written in the law? 
I want you to take note here that the Lord didn't suggest the answer could be found in philosophy books. Jesus doesn't say, hey, what's Socrates say? What's Plato say? What's one of the great thinkers of the history books say? No, he says, what does the law say? He doesn't lead him to some sort of self-help book. No, he leads him to the word of God. He doesn't put it in the category of, of a, a religious book, saying, what does, what does the... Um, what, what, what is the, the animal, animalistic tribes teaching? What is the other religion next door to us teaching? No, it says, what does the word of God say? Takes it back to the word of God. Takes it back to the law itself. And this lawyer knew the law. And so he summarized it in verse 27 with the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. And he added Leviticus 19.18. And your neighbor as yourself. Jesus affirms this in verse 28, but he does it with a twist. He says, do this and you will live. Have you ever thought about the statement there? Do this and you will live. It's almost like Jesus is saying, you can have salvation outside of me. You can have salvation outside of the cross that I'm headed to. If you will keep the commandments, you will have eternal life. And that is exactly what Jesus is saying. The Greek doesn't lie there. Jesus is saying, if you keep these commandments, if you keep them in their entirety, you will have eternal life. Here's what the lawyer's confronted with. He knows he can't keep it. How many of you this morning, you recognize that you have no ability in and of yourself to 100% fulfill everything this says about your life? Any takers? Some of you are lying this morning. You just broke it right there. Now, this lawyer understands that he cannot keep this perfectly. And so that just begs the question, can we keep it perfectly? The answer is no. And so Jesus here is directing the man to the law because he understands that the law is a tutor. The law is the, the, the word of God that reveals our need for redemption. It tells us God's standard. It tells us God's holiness. It tells us that that is what's required of us. And at the same time, we see our inadequacy. Because we understand, built into the law are these sacrifices. This whole system of offering sacrifices, what are the sacrifices for? It's for man's inability to keep the standard of God. So something has to die, blood has to be applied, so that forgiveness can be granted to the offender. And this lawyer here recognizes this. He knows this theological concept. He knows that the depravity of man that has resulted from the fall renders every single person incapable of fulfilling the demands of the law. Why? It's because man has been in rebellion from the fall. Rebellion against God. He knows that every person born into this world is born into sin, thus separated from God, also under the condemnation of a holy God. So we and he is undone. We need someone to step in and do what we cannot do for ourselves. So for us, rather than offering redemption, the law, as we read it as a tutor, is manifesting the stark dichotomy between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. It's showing us how separate, how far away they are, that God is holy and righteous in his entirety, that that is who he is, and we are woefully sinful. Are we as sinful in action as we possibly can be? Man, I hope not. But all of us are depraved completely. 
We just haven't acted on all that sinfulness and evil in our life. But for the grace of God, you just think of the grossest and most atrocious evil in this world. But for the grace of God, you could be in that today. That's how wicked we are to the core. And so the word of God shows us this dichotomy, this difference there. And this lawyer knows the law. He knows this theology. However, there's a huge difference between answering correctly theologically and living perfectly practically. So the lawyer recognized this point, and in his head the answer was correct, but his lifestyle betrayed him. And this is the very point of the law. Jesus is saying, if you keep the commandments, if you keep the law, you'll have eternal life. The man understands, yes, if I keep these things, I'll have eternal life. But he also knows that his life is betraying him because there's no possible way for him to do that. No way he could fulfill every part of the law. And so the point in all of this is that the word of God exposes sin and reveals a need for a savior. Jesus here offers this gospel answer to this lawyer's theological question, and he's calling him to recognize his sin. He's calling him to recognize his need for a Savior, but it doesn't end there. Jesus illustrates how one's heart and his actions are transformed when a person turns from sin to a Savior. And so we move to a third point in this outline, and that is Jesus offers a clarifying illustration. So at this moment in the, in the discussion, the lawyer surely is feeling the weight of his guilt, which is apparent because, think about this, when Jesus says, do this, he knows he can't do it, and so he asks kind of a weaseling type of question, who's my neighbor? If I'm going to live up to this standard, if I'm going to love God with all of my heart, my mind, my soul, my being, I mean, everything about me, if I'm going to do that and it manifests itself in how I love others, who's my neighbor? I want to get this thing right. Here's what I think is going on in the the man's head. He knows he can't fully love every single person because who can't? So he wants to know what that segment of the population is that he has to love and he's going to try to love that person. So being a good Jew and a religious Jew and a leader in the Jewish uh, faith and nation, he's thinking, it can't mean the Romans. They're the oppressors. They're the aggressors. They're the ones that have come in and conquered and taken over our land. So God, you're not going to love them. And it's surely not those half-breed Samaritans, those mongrels, those apostate uh, people that live in our midst. We can't love them. And then he's probably narrowing it down a little bit more, and he's saying, It's got to be people of character. It's got to be people like myself, right? I'm the religious person. I know the word of God, and I do the right things. And so it it can't be the, the immoral person. It can't be someone who's not like me. Who am I to love? Who is my neighbor? This illustration Jesus offered clarified the issue for the lawyer. We read here the story's opening lines sound very similar to something we would read in America today. Any major city that we go to today, we could see this sort of headline. Man walks from house to his place of employment. He's hit and robbed on the street and left for dead. We hear that in the headlines all the time. And so Jesus uses that sort of story to make the point. And this man... Jesus said, is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on his way, he's robbed and left for dead there in the road. First person to walk by is a priest. 
Jericho was one of the main areas where priests lived in that day. And so it's likely that this man had been in Jerusalem. He's traveling east to Jericho, and uh, he's been there working in the temple, working in the, the priesthood. And he comes on this road to home. He sees a man lying in the ditch or maybe in the middle of the road, and he understands he needs help, but he is supposed to be ceremonially clean. If he gets down into the weeds of this situation, he could be ceremonially unclean and unfit for what he has to do when he gets home. And so he chooses to pass on by rather than risk defilement. And to preserve legal cleanliness, he heartlessly transgressed the entire second part of the law. That's the first man. The second person is a Levite. He's traveling on this road as well. He's not a priest. He's part of a lesser class of religious leader, but he serves, excuse me, he serves in the temple. He serves in the worship aspect of Israel, and he's traveling to this city as well. He comes along. The Greek kind of gives us the idea that he might have come closer, and yet he passes and goes on, not stopping, not helping. Lawyers, he's listening to this story. I'm sure he's beginning to think, all right, what's the third example? He's picking up this Semitic type of form that's in the story. He's thinking, all right, we got the priest, we got the Levite. Surely an Israelite layman is going to be the hero. He's going to come along and he's going to save the day. He's going to help the guy. But Jesus does something here that the lawyer wouldn't expect, and he does something here you and I wouldn't expect. Who's the hero? A Samaritan. What do we know about Samaritans? I mentioned earlier just briefly, but a few weeks ago when we were back in chapter 9, and James and John were saying, Jesus, do you want me to call fire down from heaven and burn up this city of Samaritans that won't even allow us to go in there? Why would they have such hatred? It's because it goes all the way back to when Assyria captured the 10 northern tribes. It goes back to this intermingling of, of bloodlines. It goes back to the fact that these now half-breeds set up their own religious system to rival the system of Judaism. And so the Jews looked at them and saw them as mongrels and apostate people who they prayed would never enter heaven. That was the hatred between the two. They both hated one another, and yet Jesus takes this story and turns it on its head and uses a Samaritan as the hero. This hero, this Samaritan, takes this man, binds his wounds, provides aid, and then provides long-term care for him. After telling the story, Jesus asked which character proved to be a neighbor to the hurt man. And the lawyers, he, he's quick. He understands the story. And he says, the man who showed mercy. It's the man who presented compassion to him. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the Levite. Even by implication, it's not the lawyer here that, that's modeling compassion. It was the hated Samaritan. And so the scenario was likely, think about this, it could have been a true story in that area because Jesus or Luke doesn't tell us this, this is a parable. This could have been a real-life situation, headline news in the Jerusalem paper, and he's taken this story and he's just laid it out there saying, this is what modeling compassion looks like. This is what it means to love people as you love yourself. This is what it means to, 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 to love God, and this is how it plays itself out. Whatever the case, this man recognized that to love your neighbors yourself means to show compassion toward others who are hurting. And he also understood that while the priest, the Levite, and the lawyer 
can be close to the things of God, loving God and loving others is the direct, personal, and redemptive offspring of coming to know the Lord through Jesus Christ. That's why I said earlier, you can sit in church for years even and never come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a good place to be. It gets you to the right posture, perhaps. But it doesn't change who you are from the inside out. And so this story that we read in these verses is essential to our spiritual development as Christ followers. This morning, many of us in this room, we claim to follow Jesus Christ. We claim to believe the words of the Bible. We delight in biblical truth that Christ is in us and we are in him. Amen? We, we delight in that. We relish in that. We take joy in that. Doctrinally, we hold high these beautiful truths. But this morning, if we're honest, too often our lives fail to live up to the transformation that we claim. How many times do we fail to model compassion in our lives when the people around us are hurting and we just turn a blind eye to them. We turn a cold shoulder to them rather than getting over in their mess and kneeling down to help them in their wound. We pass by because we don't want to get involved. That's not the compassion that the Lord is calling us to. We argue that it's not our responsibility. We try to lower the standards at times. You remember what the Apostle John said in 1 John three sixteen, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. I just Before we read the rest of it, think about that. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. What if Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, looked down at us in our sinfulness and our brokenness and said, not me? Where would you be today? What would be your destination? In our small group earlier, we got into some discussion, and, and Trevor made a point that in America, in Western culture, we have two millennia of gospel influence that has so permeated everything that we do and know that we really don't understand what it's like to not have that. But can you imagine today... If Jesus said no, what life would be like for us today? Our whole political, judicial, legal system, everything about America is built on the premise of what we see in the gospel, what we see laid out in the word of God. And if we didn't have that, what would life be like for us today? We're not even talking redemption. We're just talking ethical, how to live your life. And how that's been influenced by Jesus. But if the Lord Jesus has says, not me. And if God the Father had says, fend for yourself. And gave us no compassion. Where would we be today? And so for us as believers who've experienced that goodness. Who've experienced that compassion. If we are to love others as he's loved us. Then we're to get down in their wounds. That's why he says here. This is how we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's easy to say we love people. It's hard to love people. It's hard to take 
money out of your pocket when somebody's in need and say, here you go, right? Because you got somewhere that need, money needs to go. That'll buy you like one gallon of gas today. <laughs> James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has or says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Brother, I hear your need. Ma'am, I'm praying for you. That's good to pray for the need. I'm not negating that. But if you have the means to meet the need, why not meet the need? Or if you have the means to connect them with someone else or, or someone's else that can help meet that, in, that need in that moment, that's a better option. Praying yes, acting yes. That's what James is saying here. That's what John is saying here. So the lawyer here is intending to trap Jesus in this theological snare, but it's the lawyer who becomes pinned by the reality of his own sin. He's trying to trap Jesus and get him in a, in a theological trap there so that, that he falls and he can be condemned. But what Jesus is doing is taking the very law and turning it on its head and saying, this is your situation. This is your life. And this man's eyes were opened, and our, our eyes need to be opened as well because... How we live with others, really a shorthand for how we are related to God. Now, we don't know anything about this man, whether he was converted. We don't know if he got converted at that moment or if it was later on or if he just said, this guy's a fool and walked away. But here's what I do believe we know. He was confronted with the word of God. He saw the truth and the reality of that word of God, and he was left to make a decision as a result, right? He had a decision to make and so for us, as we want to model compassion, as we want to model the love of God that we have experienced, we want to show that to others. Let me give you three implications, and we will land the plane this morning. Number one, showing gospel compassion to one's neighbor is evidence of having received gospel compassion. Here's what I mean. The person who's experienced the glorious grace and mercy of Christ possesses a new spiritually innate desire to replicate that compassion of the Lord toward others. You just, there's something that's changed in your heart, and at the moment of conversion and early after that conversion, perhaps you haven't fully realized what that looks like and the magnitude, and hopefully 20 years after conversion, you have a whole lot more compassion than you did early on. But I believe that when Jesus changes our lives, he gives us his desires. So when he loves, we begin to love like him. Not fully, not completely, but we're on that road and we're moving in that direction. And so showing gospel compassion is an evidence of receiving gospel compassion in your life. Think about what John says in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. There's a second implication. Your relationship with other people validates or invalidates your claim to know and love God. Here's what I mean by this. Scripture's call to love our neighbors as ourselves offers a way for our claim to be in relationship with God to be tested. So we say we love God. We say that Jesus has changed our life, but the way we love others really helps us to assess ourselves. Do I really know God? Or am I just claiming to know God? 
has Jesus really changed my life? Or am I just claiming he's changed my life? So we are allowed to put ourselves into that, that assessment, into that test. But here's what other people are doing also. You claim to know Jesus Christ? I don't know if I see it in your life. Or man, there's absolutely no doubt in my life that, that person knows Jesus. Just the way they love. Just the way they care for people. Just the way they give. Just the way they are considerate. Just the way they open up and they just say, my life is a conduit of the goodness and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. John says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So our relationship with other people will validate or invalidate our claim to know and to love God. There's a third implication. That is, if you characteristically pass by people who are physically, economically, socially, or spiritually distressed, you're probably not a Christian. That's strong language. But if you have no heart at all, if you're so calloused in how you live life that you can look at a need and just turn away, how in the world do you know Jesus Christ? You might I just say probably not a Christian. You might. You just may be walking at such a guilty distance, your life does not look like, a, like Jesus is. And I'm grateful for the, for the doctrine and the word of God that teaches us that if we are in Christ, then we will be brought back to Christ. When we have strayed, when we have walked away, God has not taken his spirit from us, but he will bring us back to that. So maybe this morning that's sort of indicative of where you're at spiritually. I would just say, let the Spirit of God bring that to light, confess it, own it, repent of it, and allow the Lord to take that hardness and that callousness of your heart and soften it like his. But if that's not true of you and you just turn a blind eye to needs, you probably don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, man, I love helping people. I love giving to people. Let's not, that, let's not let that be the ultimate litmus test, right? Because you can be generous and you can be kind and you might just have the personality that, that loves to help people. That's great. So you're not earning salvation in that. But if you're looking at it through gospel eyes, then it's the work of God. But if you're doing it just because it makes you feel good and feel better about yourself, that's different. That's you earning. That's you trying to be better and do better and look better. What we want to do is we want the Lord Jesus to so revolutionize, so impact us that we love others because it's not our love. We're just the conduit through which his love is passing through. So we're not talking about perfection here either. The Lord Jesus is the only one who perfectly loved his neighbor. We're talking about progress. We're talking about progression. We're talking about uh, consistency and a growing consistency in, your, consistency in your life. So we want to model that. We want to love others, but we understand since it's baseball season, we understand we're never going to bat a thousand, right? Some of you sluggers played baseball. You've never batted a thousand. What's, what's a good batting average in baseball? 300, right? 330? Man, if you're batting a 400, woo, that's an all-star, right? So we're thinking 30% and 40% of the time getting on base. That's good in baseball. I would say as a Christian, if we can bat 300 in the area of compassion, we're probably doing pretty good, starting out. But we ought to have a desire to bat 500 and 600 
and 700. And if the Lord allows us to live long enough and, and, and we walk in humility and, and sanctification long enough, maybe we can bat 900. But we're never going to bat 1,000. So we're not talking about that. But this morning, we want to see compassion laid out, evident in our lives. And so is gospel compassion modeled in the way you live? Today, do you possess a love for God that is just simply demonstrated in love for your neighbors and the nations? You say, I love my neighbors. Are you sharing the gospel with your neighbors? Are you there to meet the needs of your neighbors? You say, I love people from all around the world. Are you committed with us as a church to take the gospel to the nations? Pastor, I don't know if I can ever get on a plane. You don't have to get on a plane. You can pray. You can give. You can support those who are going. There's all kinds of ways for us to collectively work together for the good of the nations. And we ought to have compassion there. Modeling compassion is what this story is all about. And it's something that needs to be indicative of how we live our lives, how we love our families, how we are neighbors right here in this community. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love to us. It is a sobering thought to think about the, the reality that could have been. You looking down from heaven and saying, I ain't going. And I'm not sending. Those wretched people are on their own. They chose this. They decided upon this. They've rejected me. They've rebelled. They want nothing to do with me. They are on their own. You would have been just in declaring that. But Lord, I am grateful this morning that in your goodness and in your grace, you are merciful. And the Lord Jesus came. This morning on this Palm Sunday, we celebrate and we remember and we glory in the fact that the king was riding into town. But the king was riding in, not to sit on a throne, but to be hung on a cross. But it's through that cross, through that blood, through that death, through that burial and the subsequent resurrection that we today can have newness of life. Father, I'm thankful today that as you looked upon that sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, you deemed it worthy. Therefore, you resurrected the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, every one of us who have confessed our sin, trusted in Jesus Christ, we have been deemed worthy, not because of what we do. The man in the text says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is not the right question. It is not the right answer. The answer is, it's all the what Jesus has done for us. We glory in the cross this morning that makes us worthy and righteous and clean. And as such, now we can live out the life of the Lord Jesus pressed out through us. So help us to do that. God, help us to model compassion in our relationships right there in our home, right there in our neighborhood, right here in our community and across the globe. Neighbors and nations hearing, seeing, feeling the compassion of the Lord Jesus through our lives. God, I pray for those in this room this morning that feel the sting of that. And hopefully, like this lawyer, they're realizing, man, my life doesn't really measure up. But, Father, our lives never measure up. That's why we need the cross. And so, Father, may we look to the cross of Calvary. May we look to the blood that Jesus shed. May we glory in the fact that he has been raised from the dead so that we could have newness and 
power in our lives to live out all that you've called us to be and to do. Fathers, we have a time of response in just a moment. May our hearts be open to that, and may we respond with repentance and faith to whatever it is you've laid there on our hearts. This is your time. Have your will, have your way, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stay? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.